terrible avalanche terrain. I'm American, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> The value of looking at your own near misses. You know, did we make good decisions or did we get away with it today? Welcome to episode 2.11 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond and Peeps, Live, Ski, Repeat, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I'm stoked to say that winter has made a reappearance here in the Great Basin, as well as many other locations throughout the western U.S. I was starting to wonder if it would ever return. The flip side of the coin is that many areas have lower-than-average snowpacks, which are plagued with a smattering of weak snow and crusts. The scales are starting to be tipped in many places with widespread natural avalanche cycles and easily human-triggered avalanches. Careful out there, folks. Even if you are on gentle terrain, be aware of overhead and adjacent avalanche paths. Carefully identify islands of safety and overestimate how far an avalanche could run if it was triggered. It seems to me it's a good time to tiptoe around in the mountains and slow down. Send me some pictures of any avalanche activity you've been seeing in your areas. I'd love to check them out and share them on social media. Have you had a close call or maybe just made a good decision to turn around and want to share it on the show? Send me an email and I'll help you put something together that will be featured on our listener-provided short story segments I'm calling Slabs and Slough. You can reach out to me from my website, www.theavalanchehour.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, Stay in the Loop, and check out the store for a hat, sticker, or can koozie. All profits from sales through April will be donated to protect our winters. Okay, time for you to crack a cold 10-barrel pray-for-snow beer, unless you're listening to this while driving. And let's listen to a great interview with the amazing Lynn Wolf. Known as the First Lady of Driggs, Idaho, Lynn is a pillar within the Avalanche community. She's been an editor of the Avalanche Review since 2002 and sole editor since 2005. She's also an avalanche instructor for Yostmark Backcountry Tours and the American Avalanche Institute. She's a ski guide for Yostmark and has completed 29 years as a mountain guide in the Tetons and elsewhere. She's taking this winter off skis to battle breast cancer, but you can bet good money you'll see her in the Teton backcountry for winter of 2018-19. 
I caught up with Lynn at USAW this fall, and now I share the interview with you. Dropping in with Lynn Wolf. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks for sitting down with me today. Well, nice to see you, Caleb, as always. Yeah, I was hoping you could just introduce yourself and give us some of your background and some of the roles you play within the avalanche community. Well, introduce myself. I uh, started as a backcountry skier in Jackson in the early 80s. Um, I'm a nice southern Jewish girl, and uh, so I never had skis on before I took a Knowles uh, semester course. So uh, the first few years with skis on was uh, kind of high drama, turn fall, turn fall. <clears throat> and it was, you know, super interesting, steep learning curve, took some avalanche courses, was pretty lucky, did some stupid things. I can tell some stories later. But uh, then I got into Knowles as an instructor. I took an Knowles instructor's course in 85. Um, pretty quick after that, I got into the Knowles winter program. <clears throat> I loved it. It was great. Um, I was only cold for like half an hour between like 5 and 5.30 in the evening. And then once you got the booties on, bam, warm again. And I just loved being out there. And I think that's a great way to see changes in avalanche conditions is to really understand the interaction of the terrain and how the weather creates the snowpack. It's not just, oh, I go out there and take a snapshot, take a Polaroid, if you guys remember what Polaroids are. <clears throat> it's more like you watch the thing develop over two weeks, over three weeks. Oh, wow, that that layer that was real touchy a few days ago has now settled down, and I really understand why. So anyway, I learned <clears throat> in the Teton backcountry, I learned as a Knowles instructor, um, Started teaching a little bit of avalanche stuff for Knowles. Um, and then I started working for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides, uh, 1988. Um, thanks to Andy Carson. Um, he hired me. He had faith that I would be a good guide. And, uh, I've, big to me is the concept of loyalty. And so I have huge loyalty to Andy Carson, who saw something in me that I might not have seen myself. And so I started teaching avalanche stuff for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides, um, for Knowles. And I think I went to my first ISSW in 1996, and that would have been in Banff. So I went to Banff and was blown away. Like, wow, I want to be a part of this. This is stretching my understanding I want to be part of this community. I had seen the Avalanche Review, actually, in uh, the Knowles Library, and it was a pretty funky magazine back then. It was uh, newsprint, newspaper, and uh, lots of type shoved into a few pages. But, uh, yeah, caught my eye, caught my interest. And uh, that 96 ISSW has uh, really congealed, gelled a lot of things for me. So, yeah, started working a little bit for American Avalanche Institute. I owe a lot to Rod Newcomb, who also saw something in me. And uh, he's another of my great mentors. He's the one that brought me to Exum after 17 years at Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. And uh, 
yeah, taking classes through him, but being able to call him on the phone or go knock on his door and say, Rod, I have this question. And for him to, you know, kind of look at you and say, well, well, Lynn, that reminds me of something that happened in 1971. You just sit there and listen, and it's, it's good to have mentors like that. If you have mentors, then, yeah, ask questions. Their time is the most valuable thing that we have. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Caleb asked how I got involved with the Avalanche Review. <laughs> this is a pretty funny question, actually. And it was at another ISSW. I think it was at Penticton. So it would have been perhaps 2002, maybe. And I was at... <laughs> at the AAA, what we call now A3, American Avalanche Association, general membership meeting one evening. And I was sitting next to my friend, Blaze Reardon, who at the time <clears throat> was the uh, editor. And somebody was up in front of the meeting and they were going on and on. And uh, I had a couple beers in me <laughs> and I stuck my elbow into Blaze's side and I sort of snorted. I was like, hmm, that person needs to be edited. And he says, what do you know about editing? And, you know, I got my back hairs up. I said, I'm a good editor. <laughs> and uh, I actually have a fairly rigorous uh, classical education from where I went to high school and college back in Nashville, Tennessee, and to college in Durham, North Carolina at a small basketball school and uh blaze says y you think i said yeah yeah try me out try me out and so uh not too long after that he sends me an article or two to edit and evidently i did a good enough job and so because he, he gave me more articles to edit and i think I became assistant editor maybe 03, and we, we, I think we were just starting to put together themed issues right around then. And then Blaze was planning on going back to grad school, and he went back to grad school at the University of Montana in Missoula. And so then he handed the Avalanche Review over to me. So it landed in my lap without ever having to fill out a job application. I think that American Avalanche Association was just thrilled that they didn't have to worry about it because there had been lots of drama surrounding TAR for quite a while. Before that, I could tell you some of that, but uh, some of it's a little sorted. But, uh, yeah, I took over TAR. I think it was... 2005, 2006, we were still in the newsprint era. Um, as soon as Blaze left, Blaze had laid all the foundation for us going to color. And so we went to color um, on my early stint as editor. And uh, boy, I've had a great time with it. And I have an interesting it's a three-way mix of skills that I use. And the first is that I can actually read and write. 
I know grammar. I know how to use commas. I can go to the AP style book and, and do my references. I read pretty fast. So the technical aspects of being an editor come fairly easily. And then I've done a lot of training in the avalanche world. You know, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. You know, the, the math stuff, the science, the deep science is really challenging. Um, I have to get, I got, had to get my husband, Dan Powers, who I owe millions to, not money, but he's such an amazing supporter. But uh, Dan has, uh, he has a master's in engineering, so he's a chemical engineer, but it's really through Corel, the Cold Regions Environmental Lab at Dartmouth, and his graduate advisor was Sam Kolbeck. And so Dan's master's thesis has to do with the transference of heat through snow. Hmm. So uh, I, <clears throat> I learned how to explain faceting. It's, it's one of those things. If you really understand something complex, then you can explain it in a really simple way. But Dan taught me the mechanics of faceting. Like, oh, yeah. I get that. I don't get that. I don't get, I don't do formulas, but, uh, I, I got the math behind that. But so anyway, I have a rudimentary, I have a good enough understanding of the avalanche, um, phenomenon. And then the other thing that I have, the third prong of this is that I'm very social, you know, and I, I will talk to anyone. I'm not afraid of anyone. I will ask anyone anything. Um, I get away with saying some of the most outrageous things, so I am told. <laughs> but uh, it's because I genuinely care and I'm genuinely interested. You know? And so with that in mind, if I don't understand something, I get an article, then I know who to call. Or... If I get an article and I read it and I say, oh, wow, look, Caleb's writing about this. That's kind of similar to what so-and-so is writing about that. You guys should talk to each other. Mm -hmm. you know, And making this whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. So the Avalanche Review has been amazing for me that way. I've grown in all those three areas. Sounds like synergy. I think that would be a really good example. Yeah. I think the Avalanche Review is really cool in the fact that it's, um, it's community-based, and it helps bring the community together. And like you said, you, you put people in touch with other people that are thinking about the same thing, and that creates somewhat of a think tank and, and creates connections between people as well. Um, Lynn... I was hoping some of our listeners may not know what the Avalanche Review is. Um, could you just explain what it is and what role it plays within the community? The short version is that the Avalanche Review is a publication of the American Avalanche Association. And the long version is that we are interested in printing anything that has anything to do with avalanches. You know, history, um, science, 
Um, I've got, I've personally have a great interest in human factors and decision making. So I've, I've made a very conscious dive into that body of material, but, um, you know, people, places, things, thought, um, I try to anymore have themes for my issues. And I, I really appreciate what you say, Caleb, about it being a connector, because that's what I really want it to be. And I don't even realize that until I go to ISSW. And everybody stops by and says, oh, that was a great article. That was a great issue. Um, and I see all these people that I only know through their email address, mm -hmm. you know, or through Facebook. I'm like, wow, this is actually for a really disparate industry that's also a community. It's actually a really important role. And so that feeds back into my role with the American Avalanche Association and some of the challenges in our industry is that I personally, if you know me, you know that I am never hardly without an opinion, but I try to have independent opinions. You know, I'm, I'm an affiliate. I'm, I work for, my checks are written by the American Avalanche Association. That's where my loyalty once again lies. But uh, I wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. the, when was the first TAR published, Should and we, how many have been published since then? Well, we're on volume 36, so we've been going for a long time. What is that? I, I can't do the math right in front of me. What's that, 82, 83, something like that? Mm -hmm. But this amazing woman named Sue Ferguson started the Avalanche Review. It was... I met her, but she was on her way out, and she, and I was young and kind of nobody, and she was very intimidating, and uh, she ended up dying of breast cancer, but uh, it was Sue's baby, and Sue was a part of the really interesting, amazing crew that's out of the Pacific Northwest. Um, Mark Moore, Rich Marriott. Um, Let's see. Mr. M. Do you know Mr. M? No, Roland Amitaz. You got to put him on your list. All Talk right. about stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those guys are amazing. And they were an amazing crew. And so there's some great stories about Sue. And I really feel like I'm keeping the Avalanche Review true to her vision. Her vision is just as valid now as it was 36 years ago. So, and when she passed away, we did a retrospective of her life with all these um, things from all kinds of people. And she was also, um, uh, don't let me forget Ed LaChapelle. Mm -hmm. It was the whole crew. They were, they were Ed's crew taking off in the big white van and going to the first ISSW out of Bozeman. You know, so these great minds working on communication and science and yeah amazing people amazing problem solvers but yeah sue sue got it started sue did it all herself she did most of the writing she did all of the layout um it was her money that uh went to print it and mail it and somebody like uh, mark mueller um 
Russ Johnson, these guys know the history better than I do because they were there. But uh, when the AAA was founded the next year, AAA is actually younger than the Avalanche Review, um, they took Sue under their wing. And I think that helped solve some of her work and financial problems. Other editors, I think she handed it off to Bruce Tremper. Uh, Bruce Tremper handed it off to Steve Conger, who's up in British Columbia now. I'm still, both of them are still great supporters mm-hmm. of the Avalanche Review. You can always count on Bruce. He doesn't like it. He whines when I twist his arm, but he'll, he, he knows what it's like. So it went to Bruce, it went to Steve, it went to Jeff Brown and Farthen Felix. Um, it floundered a little bit there, and Blaze luckily came in and picked it up. And I've been doing it since since then. So for 15 years now. Yeah. And so I remember picking up the old newsprint version early on in my career. And, you know, I put off uh, signing up for my AAA membership for a long time. But I would pick them up at, at workshops or wherever I could find them. Um, and then it went through a bit of a facelift when it became the glossy magazine sort of format. And I have to say, it looks amazing now. Great job with that. Um, maybe you could just let people know how they could how they can subscribe to the Avalanche Review. We have a whole range of supporters, and uh, you can be anything from just a supporter slash subscriber, and that's thirty five dollars a year. Um, and then you can be an affiliate member, and the prices just went up. I think that's forty five. And then you can be a professional member, and I think that just went up to 60. You can also um, get a lifetime membership. Um, last I looked, that was a thousand. Um, but realize you're not just paying for you know the paper. You're paying my salary, but you're also it's your membership into your professional um, organization. And the American Avalanche Association is pushing hard to make some changes in the avalanche world to come into the modern world. You know, I think the biggest change that we're making, the biggest thing that we've been pushing for really the last four years is the recreational and professional education split. Um, And I know Jamie and I were talking about this a couple days ago. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we think this is important? And it was really came to a head at one of the forums at the Banff ISSW. Did you go to that? I was not there, no. But that was one of the first ones where they had panels, and they had a panel. um, It was talking about standards in the workplace. And I can't remember exactly who it was, but I think one of the people, I think it might have been Grant Statham, said, you, the industry, is much better off setting the standards from inside the industry than waiting for the government to do it 
from outside. After yeah. something bad happens, perhaps, yeah. or, you know, yeah. when it's absolutely needed. you got to be proactive about it, right? Yeah, and he's speaking from a huge body of experience because he got his his job at Avalanche Canada, or he's going to kill me, Parks Canada, um, after that Connaught Creek terrible accident where all those school kids got killed. Mm -hmm. And so the government came to him, and they were smart. They picked the right guy. They came to him and said, fix it. Mm -hmm. Make it so that this doesn't happen again. And so he he had the power and the impetus and the respect of the Canadian avalanche industry, and so he was able to do that. But he didn't have a lot of time, and it was being reactive. And I think that was one of the things that really pushed us towards the pro, having the wreck and pro track. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think I think the AAA, A3, <clears throat> I think it's, it's smart. It's... It's been challenging. Yeah, any any time you bring that many players to the table to try and find consensus, it's it's always going to have some challenges, I'm sure. America is different than the Canadian model. The Canadian model is very central. You know, it's it all revolves around Avalanche Canada. They get their money from the government, um, so they they have this power okay, this is what we're going to do, and people might grumble or they might agree, but that's what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the great strengths, I remember talking to Carl Berkland one time after I went to visit Avalanche Canada, I'm like, oh, they're all in one building. They have this whole building. You know, We all work out of our laptops on our dining room tables, and we're like, wow, look at that. They're all together. And Carl, he's so brilliant he says that's their strength but that's also their weakness our strength as an american avalanche community avalanche culture is that we're so spread out that we have these ideas that we foment in our own places and and we try them out we test them oh let's see how this works you know like tremper and his crew take uh, Roger Atkins's avalanche character and turn that into tools you can use in a forecast. And the rest of us look at Bruce and we're like, huh, that's really cool. I, can I can I steal that? But it, it gets a lot more vetting mm-hmm. when it's run through my crew and the Tetons and then Ethan and Brian down in Colorado. You know, they give it a very rigorous trial by fire and it comes out not as something different but much more three-dimensional so and so that's part of why this professional track stuff has been so challenging you know we we develop our curriculum our curricula separately or we take an airy curriculum and tailor it to fit our own needs. And we don't want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm American. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> so, But do you want to be told what to do from inside the industry or by the government when something screws up? Sure. So another question I have for you, and maybe, maybe we just talked about it, but 
it's a tough one, but what do you think the biggest challenge facing the avalanche community is today? We get a little bit too caught up in our differences, and we don't see that this thread running through all of our actions and all of our mission statements is to save people, to prevent people from getting caught in avalanches. That's what unites us. I think we're just, we're arguing about small points. Mm -hmm. And I think people should be a little bit more gracious and learn the art of compromise, um, learn truly how to come to consensus. And that for everyone means letting go of something. Mm -hmm. For a common goal. Yeah. 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 For avalanche education. Right. And to realize that, you know, for all the students out there, and that includes us too, you know, we're lifelong learners, that different people learn in so many different ways. Right. You know that. You're an avalanche educator too. Yeah. Um, how have you seen avalanche education evolve since you've started teaching? <clears throat> well, there's a few little basic things. Uh, I sure do like PowerPoint a lot better <laughs> than... Uh, uh, <laughs> slide carousel. Slide carousel or that the overhead transparencies. <laughs> yeah. The, so uh, embedding videos, tracking snowpack, um, obviously use of the Internet, yeah. remote data collection, um, We've standardized our vocabulary a little bit more. But I think still the real learning comes in small groups, mm -hmm. you know, where you or I takes, you know, two, three, four, six people, up to six people, like, let's go tour. Let's go for a real tour. Yeah. Let's go look at some things. Let's go translate what it said in that forecast into, wow. That top slab really is not adhered very well to what it's on top of. So let's go look at things. Let's go practice. We might have better articulation, better vocabulary, but that's where the magic happens, I think, is in the field. Mm -hmm. One thing I really like in terms of modern avalanche education is this focus on decision-making. You know, whether you're using a checklist, um, whether you're talking about human factors and filters, whether you're using Ian McCammon's um, facets, I think there's a lot more understanding and acceptance of the human animal and how he or she makes decisions. Or, as Roger Atkins says, doesn't make decisions. Mm. Lynn, what is your favorite issue of the Avalanche Review been? Or, or themed issue, I guess I should say. As an educator, um, once Blaze and I started doing the themed issues, the uh, April issues are all about human factors and decision-making. But the very first one of those that we did, was it was 26-4. I remember it really, really clearly because it was at uh, the two excuse me, the 2004, the Jackson ISSW, 
And Blaze and I, we walked around with our little notepads and we looked at a bunch of the posters. And we put a bunch of the poster authors in our crosshairs and and then we had them write up their posters you know it's a little bit less scientific a little bit more approachable uh, format that's kind of how I we structured our articles and I set them up as in my editorial I said what do you think about these what do these make you think of um, what about this progression? I could go back and reread that editorial. And so that was April 2005. And sometime, I think it was in June of 2005, I received in my email inbox a note from Ed LaChapelle, who said, here's an essay that I wrote in response to your editorial in that issue of the Avalanche Review. And this was that essay that's called uh, The Ascending Spiral, which is, I mean, I cried like a baby, like, oh, really, I've, I've made it. I, Ed, Ed read what I had to say, and he thought it was, you know, I had something important to say. It was, it was very touching. And, and so that's where The Ascending Spiral came from. And so I remember that very, very vividly. Right. Um, Lynn, how do we go about looking at archived avalanche reviews? If you go to the American Avalanche Association's page or our website, AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org, um, there's a pull-down tab that's resources, and on there, there's the avalanche review, and you can download the PDFs, and I think we have PDFs from... Volume 20, which would be, I don't know, I'd have to think about that. Volume 20, maybe 2002, something like that, um, through last year. Mm -hmm. And I don't put this year's PDFs on the website because um, I want you to become a supporter. Um, the other thing that I have on... Um, that same pull-down tab is the Avalanche Library. Right now, the last time I looked at it, it was in flux. It was changing places on the avalanche.org site. But I've deconstructed a bunch of TARs over the years, and I've filed them in different categories. I oh, have, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's case studies, people and places, um, snow mechanics, um, decision-making, weather, um, some things like that. So it's right now it's in flux as the avalanche.org site gets updated, but hopefully it'll come back online. If you're interested in it, then send an email to Jamie. Tell her that you want it because it hasn't gotten a lot of traffic but I think it's because nobody knows about it, and then it will go away. Don't let it go away, please. Yeah, I certainly did not know about that. Um, that seems like a really good resource. What is the hardest part of being editor of the Avalanche Review? <sighs> Boy, it used to be 
that ski patrollers can't write. <laughs> but actually, that's not my issue anymore. The issue is when people promise things and then they just get too busy. So it's it's writing or calling and being like, you promised, mm -hmm. you promised this story, you promised this article. It's like, oh, that whoosh was the sound of the deadline flying by. <laughs> and so you put out four a year, correct? Four issues a winter yeah. is my volume. Right. And then you have deadlines for um, to get pieces into you, usually a couple months ahead of each issue? Yep. My, uh, my beginning of the season issue, uh, it's either September or October, depending on ISSW, and the deadline for that is August 1st. Um, it's this, usually the season summary issue. We're talking about what went on last year. It's stuff that's left over, you know, that people did at the end of the season. Lots of metamorphism, people changing jobs. Um, that one's, I'm glad that it's the season summaries that I don't have to edit and get back to the forecasters because I'm usually uh, working full time. I'm also an Exum guide in the summer. Um, so for, August 1st for the first issue, October 1st for the December issue, uh, December 1st, and it's really a rolling deadline, December 1st through 15th, October 1st through 15th, so everything doesn't come in at once. Um, but anyway, December 1st through 15th for the February issue, and then uh, February 1st through 15th for the April. And I try to figure out themes Ahead of, ahead of time. Um, I've stuck with the April being um, human factors in decision-making and season summaries for the first one. And then the December one really varies. Um, if it's an ISSW year, then it's usually about ISSW and themes that come up at ISSW, what struck people, those are those are a ton of work because there's so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. Go through next time you pick up an avalanche review, go through and look at how many different authors are in one of those and realize that I have had at least five email exchanges with each one of those authors. Maybe not just exchanges, but threads, right? Oh, dude. Yeah. 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 A lot of back and forth there. Yeah. Um, so can anybody contribute to the Avalanche Review? Sure. And how do they go about getting in touch with you? Uh, go to the American Avalanche Association.org. Um, go to the Avalanche Review page, and my email and phone number are on there for the world to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, I usually ask people to... Keep it to about a thousand words, which is roughly a page. You know, that's really flexible, but that's a great guideline. Keeps you from talking too much. Right. Well, I know from my experience, I put off my American Avalanche Association membership for a little while. And, and if anybody's listening to this that is thinking about becoming a member, I would say absolutely do it. Not only to get the Avalanche Review. Uh, in your mailbox four times a winter, but to support a really good cause, a really good organization, and so we can 
continue this discussion throughout the Avalanche community in different mediums. I think it's really important. Um, Thanks, Caleb. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your experiences with um, in the snow and in the avalanche world. And I was hoping you can maybe share some watershed moments within your career, any, any close calls or, or specifically aha moments where a light bulb went off and things started. You mentioned things really congealing for you when you went to the 96 ISSW, but any, any good stories you got? I have a lot of stories. (laughs) Uh, the one that, uh, if you're a regular reader of the Avalanche Review, um, the one story that I shared <clears throat> was something called Taylor Musings, and that was from an incident that happened probably five years ago. Um, I might have to go look it up. It gets a little fuzzy, but uh, there's a peak called Mount Taylor, um, it's right off the highway, Teton Pass, and uh, we had just dropped down from high avalanche danger, um, big storms on top of a surface war um, layer that really didn't get laid down, didn't, didn't fall over at all, it was standing real proud, but it was also on top of a uh, a deep slab problem. And three buddies and I decided to go up and ski on the south face of Mount Taylor, um, but to really watch our slope angles. And we did one run. It was absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we got away with that one just fine. There were three people up above us and to the west on the south face. And one of them was jumping on some rollovers kind of right near a rock and he in a very steep section of the face. And he ended up triggering like a D2.5. It was probably like an R3. Um, and the interesting thing about that one is that, I don't know if my listeners have been to the Tetons, but that there's a runout that comes from way up above from the west side of Glory, from Coal Creek, that's a pretty low angle. You know, it's safe skiing, but you're coming out below some pretty hairball avalanche terrain. And so he triggers this thing, and this big avalanche comes down the south face, down the poop chute, turns the corner, and goes another quarter mile down Coal Creek. Um, we as a community were really lucky that nobody was on the runout right then. Because that's pretty much the approach for all of that skiing. Uh, there's um, a lot of different approaches, you know, for the upper part. Um, a lot of people will climb glory, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hitchhike up the pass, hike up glory, go ski that, come out and maybe come to their car or hitchhike back up. You know, for us going to ski that south face, you come right underneath that poop chute. So there could be all kinds of people there. 
And so there was a huge hullabaloo, um, basically a shitstorm. And it was, it was in the media, it was on Steve Romeo's, um, uh, what's his, what was his website? Teton AT. The Teton AT site. It had, I don't know, something like 150 comments on it. And, you know, I, I thought about it. I talked about it. It occupied me. It preoccupied me for two months. And then I sat down and wrote Probably, I broke my own rule. I probably wrote 3,000 words about the incident and the, the avalanche conditions, the weather conditions, our decision-making um, about that day. And then I wrote about some of the repercussions. You know, I wrote about why it's important to be really honest and look at your own near misses. You know, did we make good decisions or did we get away with it today? You know, where was I the most vulnerable? You know, and I know, you know, my tracks from that morning didn't get taken out, but somebody else's that were right next to me did. So did we make good decisions or were we right at the line? You know, I asked, I talked to lots and lots of people. Carl Berkland, once again, had a really good insight here. He said, sometimes you have to go over the line in order to see where the line is. But you just need to be really honest about that. And so I think my Taylor Musings article was pretty honest about it. Uh, one of the things that I touted was the, the yeah, the snowy torrents idea, and I'm really thrilled to see that the A3 is pushing on getting the snowy torrents up to date. We have one volume that's out, um, which I think is, what's that, 86 to 94, and we're working on the other two right now. So thanks to our publications uh, chair, Blaze Reardon, for pushing on that thanks to Knox Williams Knox and Spencer who worked so hard and then this issue 94 to I don't know 2000 2002 yeah something like that um right now the editors are Dale Atkins Blaze Reardon and Spencer Logan Mm -hmm. so that should be out maybe March maybe February I don't know yeah. We learned a lot in the first one. Right. Tremendous amount of work putting put into that, I'm sure, from those guys. Yeah. 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 But anyway, that was one of the things that I really touted was the value of looking at your own near misses. Mm-hmm. So right now, as an industry, uh, Scott Savage, um, Ethan Green, Bill, Bill Williamson have just put together um, – uh, avalanche worker safety. Um, have you talked to those guys? You're going to talk yeah, to those guys? I just interviewed Scott. Um, and for my listeners, you'll probably have already heard that episode by the time this one airs, but that's really exciting stuff. And I think that's a very important part of our industry. Um, and amazing because I mean, it's, it's an anonymous database, you know, there's no reason not to go in there and recount any of these near misses that you've had within your 
past avalanche career because we can all learn from them. Interesting thing about that is that it's worker oriented. It's workplace oriented. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not for recreation accidents, recreational accidents. That's one thing that I'm finding right now is uh, that there's no real consistent place for people to report and discuss recreational accidents. Mm. And they end up getting blown up on the forums and it, it gets a little name calling. It gets a little vituperative out there. You know, the best jobs are done by the forecast centers when they can go give root causes and go talk to people. You know, I know I've talked to Brett Kobernick, cowboy from the UAC, about this quite a bit. And, uh, yeah, we did a whole avalanche review issue a few years ago that was accident analysis. Mm-hmm. And so it's looking at programmatic causes, you know, your deep background, and not just your decisions made out there. But, uh, yeah, there's there's nothing out there right now as a database for recreational accidents. I asked Scotty Savage about it. He kind of laughed, like, oh, let's see how the worker one goes first. <laughs> so. Maybe that's the next big thing. Yeah. Anybody out there looking for a, taking on a project? I'm sure it pays well. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, are there any other resources out there that you suggest people interested in avalanches as a recreationist or professional include in their bag of tricks? The one thing I want to put in a plug for is the the for the local snow and avalanche workshop scene. I know lots of places are putting these on. Um, boy, there's California. It was a fairly new one. Um, the Tetons have, this is our third year for the Wysaw, um, Seesaw. Um, we're here getting ready for the Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop, which is one of the oldest ones. There's a couple up in Alaska. But uh, the AAA, A3, has recognized that these regional workshops are a great place for people to learn and for people to get together and talk and not just hear presentations, but to learn informally. And so this is where we've chosen to put a lot of our uh, membership money. We, we support these really strongly. So um, go to your local SAW if you are like, huh, that wasn't that interesting, or I wish they had done this, then get involved. I know every single committee would love to have your help. Yeah. I know another couple that come to mind are the Northwest Snow and Avalanche Workshop as well as the Northern Rockies, I think, is a newer one. Yep. So they're they're kind of popping up everywhere. A great opportunity for continuing education there. Yeah, we have them listed on our website for sure, and mm-hmm. I know Backcountry Access has them on their website. And so, yeah, great, great, great thing to do. Well, Lynn, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking to me today and um yeah, it was great to hear about some of the beginnings of the Avalanche Review and, and the role it plays within the community. I Again, I urge anybody that isn't subscribed to the Avalanche Review to do so. It really is the uh, the common professional publication of our industry and our profession um, and totally appropriate for recreationalists as well. Um, so uh, please 
go ahead and head on over to the AAA's website and become a member. And uh, you too can have four issues of tar in your in your mailbox every winter. So thanks, Lynn. Um, anything else you wanted to say to the community? Uh, send me photos. Send me stories. Um, send me stuff. Yeah, I'm always interested in what you're seeing and what you're thinking about out there. All right. Well, thanks again, and cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Lynn. The community sends healing vibes as you kick that cancer square in the ass. Thanks to all the listeners for supporting and sharing the show with your friends and coworkers. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Please, it helps. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Couldn't do it without you guys. Music today was performed by Poddington Bear and Grammatic and made possible by the permission of the artists or through the Creative Commons license put together by freemusicarchive.com. Check out more of their tracks from a link on my website. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. Check him out at www.miketea.com. Tune in next time on March 15th when we highlight an interview with Michael Silich of the Brass Foundation. Brass stands for the Bryce and Ronnie Athlete Snow Safety Foundation, and they work to bring avalanche education to ski racing programs. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.